So this morning we look to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And after spending a considerable amount of time in Matthew uh, for the last uh, few years, we are beginning uh, Romans. And last week we started with the first few verses uh, in Romans uh, chapter 1. This morning we'll look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 15. And I've entitled this sermon, Paul's Thankfulness for the Elect. Paul's Thankfulness for the Elect. And so we will read, uh, I wanted to read all of Romans, uh, actually Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17, and then we'll explain what those few uh, verses 8 to 15 uh, mean this morning. Uh, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I, may, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part... I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look to this, uh, to this text... Uh, it is indeed Paul is expressing thankfulness. He's expressing thankfulness uh, for God choosing whom he will unto salvation. And I say that because of what is said in verse two about Paul himself as he introduces not only himself, but he introduces the work of Jesus in the hearts of those to whom he is writing. And he says in verse two, after talking about himself being set apart to the very gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as a called apostle. He says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. It is not only that uh, God himself has decreed the spreading of the gospel, but he's also decreed that it would be those who would receive the gospel of our of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is recorded before us. And Paul in verses eight to 15 is expressing thankfulness. He's expressing thankfulness. And so Paul comes to this uh, particular uh, group of Romans desiring to be with them, with them, 
His priority in this greeting was not only to identify the elect, but also to show them how thankful he was to God for their salvation. That is why he's writing as he is uh, where we find this letter written to them. But he's also thankful for their own proclamation of salvation. He's thankful that they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's thankful that they're from their mouths, that they're leading people to the truth. And that the holy gospel is being spread throughout the known world. Paul is thankful for this as a called apostle. He's grateful for this work. And so it was not only that that uh, they're receiving this letter that provoked him to show his love for them, but ultimately he loved them because of their faithfulness to the Lord, their faithfulness to his king and their testimony of him throughout the world. And so that's why he writes what he does when he begins to give thanks for them to God. This drove him to thankfulness. Paul was thankful that they represented Christ. Paul was detached himself as a called apostle from personality cultism. Paul was not thankful because simply he was Paul an apostle and they received him. He was thankful because they received Christ by the witness that he was entrusted with and that they were spreading the name of Christ among the known world at that time. And we see this very early on in the letter because that's what he says. Everything he points to is the work of Christ, the person of Christ, what Christ has accomplished in his own life, and also what he would accomplish among the Gentiles. And so he was thankful for that. And he gave testimony to it and was glad that they did as well. He was also attached to the full weight of the glorious doctrines of our faith because the gospel is not simply uh, the gospel in that it is a testimony, but it is all of the teachings tied to Jesus Christ as they point to the fact that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect, sinless and holy life and that he was indeed crucified on the cross and raised from the dead and will rule in power and certainly does at this moment. So Paul was certainly attaching all those things together. And I say that because when we went through this last week, we talked about all the teachings, all the glorious doctrines of the faith that represent uh, that are represented in this letter. Because he talks about the obedience of faith. He talks about the son of God being resurrected and how that is certainly fundamental to understanding what Christ had accomplished. He's talking about the prophets. He's bringing in the Old Testament as it is as it is a witness to what will take place in the new. So all these things are taking place as Paul is penning this letter to the Romans and explaining to them what indeed uh, Christ has accomplished, not only in him, but in them. And we'll get to why that's important. But he wanted these things to be articulated. He was certainly glad to see that God's spirit was moving through his church and the church at large throughout the known world at that time. But also what that represented for the future, that there was a future hope, not only for God's Gentiles, but also for the Jews. And we'll see that as well as we look at Romans chapter two in the coming weeks, all the way out through the rest of the letter. But again, he was driven to thankfulness. He was driven to thankfulness. He was grateful for those who were saved. That's why Paul was thankful as an apostle. He wasn't thankful simply because they were gathered around him. He was grateful because of what Christ had accomplished in them. 
And then what we're getting to is that he was ultimately thankful because he wanted to be with them so that he could benefit from the gifts that God had given them. And so that he could benefit from their salvation. For he was grateful that God saved them through Christ Jesus. So whatever service they rendered to the church, Paul traced it to the saving work of Jesus Christ, not himself. That's why he was thankful. That's what kept him encouraged. That's what kept him going, even in the course of his own ministry, as he faced the dark days of imprisonment, of constant persecution, constant mocking, people belittling the testimony of him. Paul not being one who preached to the swelling crowds, for he spent most of his ministry in prison. But Paul himself was grateful that people were being saved. He was grateful that people were being saved. And he was also grateful that they remain where they were in the testimony of his son and proclaiming the glorious gospel. And it's spreading from them through the church throughout the world. That's what he was grateful for. It is not so today for men are grateful for many things and many things they are grateful for relate to how many people they can draw to themselves and how many people are gathered around themselves. But not Paul. Paul pointed all this to the work of Christ. And so as an apostle, he was grateful. God served as the supreme witness to these things. And that's why Paul brings his name into it. Because God not only called Paul the apostle to be an apostle, but he did so so that he could call in the Gentiles to salvation. And so he says that God is his witness. If you look at verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. And we'll get to the words beyond that. But he calls in God as a witness because God is witnessing his own saving work in people. He is the author and finisher of our faith. But also he's witnessing to the sworn testimony and motives for his own affection among those whom God has called. Paul is saying, I bear in my heart motives that align with God's will for his people. And so I'm thankful for that. For salvation creates that affection in the heart of a man. That he wants people saved. He wants people to be redeemed. He wants people to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called. He testifies to that fact when he speaks to the Ephesians. God was not merely a witness to Paul's preaching, but a witness to his motivations for preaching. It is many today who preach and many who teach, but the motives have to be correct. The motives have to certainly be in pursuit of God's ultimate goal for those who hear the preaching of his word. That is their holiness, their salvation, their sanctification, seeing him as he is, their glorification, meeting with God in eternity. That is why men stand and preach or why they ought to and why they teach. And so Paul was thankful that God witnessed these very motives in his own heart. And Paul could trace that work to God's saving mercy through Christ. And so, but more than preaching, more than preaching, because I want you to understand this, that it's not so much only about the preaching. For that certainly is how the gospel comes to a man and how a man hears it and how a man is saved by it. But here we see something of Paul's motives in his actions. 
More than preaching, God was witness to how, in other words, the manner in which Paul made mention of the saints to God himself. Something that maybe they did not see, but Paul made them aware of it. That Paul knew that the advance of the gospel through his church, through God's church, and through the people, and for them to walk in a manner worthy of the, of the calling with which they have been called, that if he were to fulfill his apostolic duties, that he had to pray for them, that he had to pray. So Paul makes mentions of the saints, and he's thankful for that. They're not simply targets to receive his teaching. They're not simply names on a spreadsheet. They're not simply something to bolster his ministry acumen among men. What Paul did in private was he prayed for them. And then he told them he was praying for them. And that was just as much as a part of the ministry that he was entrusted to as an apostle. It was just as much as doing that as well as teaching them. So he prayed for them. He prayed for God's people. As I mentioned, the saints were not simply targets or goals for Paul. They were not people to impress or leap over for the next big ministry score. They were Paul. They were they were Paul's uh, Paul's fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They were not Paul's minions to bobble their heads and agree and rally around some inflated view of his person uh, so as to promote him above Christ himself. And Paul corrects that in Corinthians because that happens in the church in Corinth. Paul was a man of humility. And he wanted everyone to see Christ. He wanted to see Christ formed in them. And then he wanted Christ to be testified to the known world from their mouths. And so he wanted them to be joined to Christ. Because the devastating effect of a first generation apostle. In a first generation church. And this would be the only generation of apostles. But the first generation church. Would be for these apostles to proclaim themselves to men. And then what would happen is the known world would promote them above Christ and then you would have a catastrophe. Instead, what Paul did in coming to them, and he was known he was known to the Romans, but in coming to them, he deflected all the glory to God. Even here in the simple reality that he not only preached to God's people, he prayed for them. He prayed for them. Prayer is a certain act of true spiritual care. It is the sense in which we use the term shepherding. So much is said about how we ought to shepherd people, uh, but prayer is certainly at the forefront of that. And that is what Paul was about. He was truly about shepherding, praying for people, and letting them know how much he cared, and letting them know how much he prayed. They were simply not a means to an end. And this is why the church at large today in the West is where she is. Because people have become goals. People have become a means to an end in and of themselves of some kind of material ascension uh, of acclaim and prestige. And that is not so from the hand of Paul and from the mouth of Paul in any of his letters. He wanted people to be right with God and he wanted God proclaimed from them to them and through them. And we see that. Because he said, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ 
for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's what he was thankful for. Verse 9, for God whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, always in my prayers, making requests. And there's a specific request that he has. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to be with them. And then you look at verse 11. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Paul wanted people to be right with God. He wanted them to be right before God. Not like so many today who merely want men to be right before men. He wanted men to be right before God. And so he not only mentioned them before God, because if that was to happen, he had to pray for them. He had to want what God wanted for them. He had to pray that they would follow God's will. He not only had to teach them God's will, he had to pray that they would follow the will of God. That they would be fully invested in the will of God. And that the gospel would flow through them to the known world. But he did so unceasingly. He did so unceasingly. And in this, he specifically longed to be with them and to travel with them. Paul wanted to be with the church in Rome. He longed to be with them. And he didn't count it sin when he couldn't be with them because we will find out in the text that he's hindered from being with them. But he certainly wanted to be with them. And it was not material prosperity or acclaim he longed to receive. Instead, he wanted to impart a gift to them. This points to the work of the spirit. And that is why he says what he says, because it is the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who gives gifts to his church and gives gifts to men. And so those gifts are what Paul wanted to impart. And I'll also say that those gifts are what Paul wanted to receive. And so he made mention and prayer to them, about them to God, and told them that he prayed for them. Verse 11 and 12, he says here, spiritual gift. And he deals with the effect of that gift. He deals with the mutual benefit of the gift that he wanted to not only impart to them, but the, the benefit of receiving what he did from them. He wanted this and he wanted it before God and he prayed that it would be the case. He prayed that whenever he was before God's people, that the gifts were being stirred up in them so that he could receive them. And we'll get into the effect of that. But that's what he wanted. That's what he prayed for. He didn't simply pray that he would draw a crowd. He didn't simply pray that his name would be known among them. He didn't pray those things at all, as a matter of fact. What he prayed was that he wanted to come to them in spite of all the things that were taking place around them. And he wanted them to be built up in the faith. And he, too, wanted to be built up by them. And he wanted to build them up. You're getting a picture of how the church operates in the true sense of fellowship. But he longed to be with them. He wanted to strengthen them. He wanted to strengthen them. He knew that they needed to be strengthened. And how much more so in the world in which we live today, 
where Christians need to be strengthened. We need to be strengthened, prayed for. We need to use our gifts in the employee of the church and use our gifts to build one another up. And so this is what Paul prayed for. And the effect of that would be the mutual benefit. That's the effect. The effect is the mutual benefit. The encouragement that they receive from one another. There would not only be the benefit of strengthening them from Paul's vantage point. That is certainly what he wanted. But he also wanted to benefit. He not only wanted to encourage them. And we'll get into what encouragement means. But he wanted to benefit from the gifts from the investment, so to speak, in the true teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the sound doctrine accompanying the gospel work itself. And he wanted to benefit from. It. He wanted to benefit and he pleaded to God that that would be the case. It was not simply I want to teach you. It's not simply hear me because I am teaching. It's I'm praying for you so that you're receiving these things so that I can benefit from what you're receiving. And so that one to another, we can build each other up so that we can grow into the stature of being a mature man in Christ altogether. That's what he wanted. And so its effect would certainly be mutual benefit. But I want to deal with what he's truly asking. I want to deal with that, because if you look at verse uh, 11, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. And then if you look at verse 12, he explains it by saying that is that I may be encouraged together with you, together with you while among you. And then look at how he uses the words he uses. Each of us by the other's faith, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul is saying we need the mutual benefit. I need to be encouraged by your faith as much as you need to be encouraged by mine. But this form of encouragement is not only saying nice things. This form of encouragement is heavily tied to the essence of fellowship. It is what the word actually means in the Greek language. It is not the so-called practical encouragement that throws aside theological teaching and understanding and doctrine. It's not that. It's not simply we relate to one another by saying nice things, although that has its place. But it is the fact that this form of mutual encouragement that Paul longed for in his travel to them was, listen to this, full agreement together on what God had declared. That's the essence of the word. And I believe you can see that not only in the language itself, but you can see that in the context. Because where Paul begins, it's not so much dealing with anything experiential apart from what Christ had accomplished. He deals with what Christ has accomplished, what God the Father has accomplished, and he deals with what the prophets have testified to, and he deals with how the apostles are related to that testimony. And then he says, I want to benefit from all of this, one to another, all together. So he's dealing with the being strengthened by uh, the agreement on what God has declared and what God has accomplished. That's how we're built up. That's how we're strengthened one to another in the church. And I would say that this is the essence of true Christian encouragement. Don't come to me like Job's friends and say things 
that have nothing to do with what God is trying to accomplish, but you are trying to experientially encourage me. Come to me with scripture. Come to me with the divine testimony from God's own mouth about what he has accomplished. And I will come to you in that same way. But in order for us to encourage one another, we have to know that. We have to know those things. We have to study those things. We have to deal with those things. And so the encouragement is not simply being able to quote verses. The encouragement is, I know what God has accomplished, the totality of it. I know where it's going. I know where it came from. I know who's the head of the church. I know what he's accomplished. And I hold to the apostolic testimony as testified in the New Testament. And so when I come to you, it's not just rattling off phrases, but it's actually dealing with the fact that this is what God has accomplished. And let's build each other up in this. Let the word of God always be on our mouths and we're building one another up in that. And I know today that that's not popular. It's not popular. But we're to do these things in season and out of season. The church is a peculiar thing. It's not a thing that is to be readily recognized by the world system. It is peculiar. Why do we do this? Why do we gather together to commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on the Lord's day? Why do we stand up and come before one another and open up the scripture and read it and proclaim it? And then want to live by it and then desire to mutually be edified one to another by it. The world calls this cultism. The world thinks that we've lost our minds. The world thinks that because we lack a certain wisdom in putting together all the programs that the world has, that somehow we've deviated from the scheme of God. But I would say the essence of true encouragement is that we stick to what God has said and build one another up in that. Because that's what the apostle did. And the apostle didn't do it because it was lucrative or his life was easy. The apostle, in fact, church history tells us he eventually suffered martyrdom, that he was killed by the Roman Empire itself. He was declared an enemy of it. But Paul said, I want you all to benefit from the gifts and I want you all to benefit from the teaching, because if I teach it to you and I build you up in it, then you're going to encourage me by it. And then when I come to you, now we have true fellowship, the true sense of koinonia. That is a fellowship rooted on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I know that that would seem radical to a world that certainly wants nothing to do with Christ himself. Or they want to diminish his work or they want to redefine it. But I'm here to tell you this morning that what Paul desired is certainly what I can tell you my heart desires. But it's also what the church ought to be striving for. The church ought to be striving for that which Christ has proclaimed through Paul. Because what did Paul say? Imitate who? Me as I imitate Christ. And in this I believe we have our imitation. Paul is saying this is how your heart ought to, ought to be directed. That we ought to pray for one another. We ought to encourage one another in the truth. That we ought to discern what God is doing in the world before us and also how the church plays a part. But that we have to build one another up. We have to build one another up. I'm not talking about the essence of what is redefined sometimes as community. But I am talking about the essence of the teaching and how it has its effect upon the heart and the mind. And how it stirs us to not only obey, which Paul talks about. Uh, he speaks of it in verse 5, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. We want that. 
But we also want, along with the obedience, we want to be built up continually to do what Christ commands. And I say that because what you're going to find in the verses that follow the passage that we're in today, when we look at the, uh, the, the, the situation related to unbelief, its consequences, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, what you'll find is not only are those things an assault to God's kingdom, but those things are the norm in the world. And so when you do what I'm saying, that Paul has said, that Christ has said, when you do that, the world will look at you and go, yeah, that's weird. Why would you do that? That has nothing to do with God, with, with the God we serve, the God of our bellies. They look at you like you are a peculiar thing, and that's fine. Because you are. Because of what God has accomplished in Christ. Standing up and declaring that Jesus Christ is the head of the church is certainly a peculiar thing to a world that hates him. And it's not that they don't know it. It's that they suppress it. And so Paul is preparing them in the first part of this letter, which would have been read as a continuous letter. Paul is preparing them to understand that it takes the fortitude and courage and boldness in the Holy Spirit to not only proclaim these things, but to actually live as though they're true. It takes courage. And it takes courage because you have people under God's wrath who are coming to assault these very things. They're coming to snatch it away. Satan behind them. So this is what Paul wants. He's saying I need to be built up in this. Because it's coming under attack. It's coming under attack. It's coming under assault. They need to be unashamed of the gospel. Because there's going to be every reason to be ashamed of it. They need to be unashamed of Christ. Because there's going to be every reason to be ashamed of him. And so they need to step forward no matter what it costs. And, it, and Christ said it may cost them their very lives. And we knew it did for many of the apostles. But they needed to step forward and live these things in hostile territory. Because they're ambassadors, aliens. In essence, they weren't home. But they needed the essence of true Christian encouragement. Encouragement in the things of Christ. They needed this true fellowship, just as we need it. We need it one together, one to another, for each other's benefit. It's what the church truly needs. But I'll tell you, what we face today is no different as we will look to in the next couple weeks. We'll look to Romans chapter 18, uh, chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 18 to 32. We'll look to that. And what you'll notice is so many things, but you'll notice that it is the normative pattern of the world. What we read in verses 18 to 32 will be clear to you that this is what the world does. Yes, they're guilty of it, but you want to see here how the distinction between uh, verses 1 to 17, how the church is supposed to operate and then go out into the world. Well, you see in 1832 that the world is certainly operating on a whole different system. And that system on both sides of it, it's not passive. The way the world conducts themselves is all set up to assault the church. And so Paul is saying, essentially, we need each other. We need each other related to the teachings of Christ. We need to follow him. We need to pray for one another. We need to understand what's written and then apply it as we have talked about even throughout Matthew's gospel. But we also have to go out and win those who actually hold and are enslaved, uh, who hold to and are enslaved by the world system. You see the distinction. 
And so Paul will, as we look at what we will next week, he'll come to a place where he speaks of not only the mutual encouragement that we have for one another, but he speaks of his obligation to win those who are hostile toward the proclamation of the gospel itself. And listen to this, the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel and all his teachings and even how we live related to Christ. All of that is your defining righteousness to people. You're defining, more importantly, the righteousness of God to people. Because people live in an unrighteous way before God. It's why what is written is written in the verses that follow. But you're teaching people in a sense that they have to live righteously before God. And I've explained those benefits, but there's also a certain threat by God himself for those who do not live righteously. But I'll tell you, take this away with you. Because encouragement is redefined. And if you can redefine the essence of what we talked about related to encouragement, you can redefine how people relate to God himself in righteousness. For if people are merely encouraged in such a way so as to look at the world before them and think it will get better, then they will live according to the world's standard and try to make it better for themselves. But that is not what Paul is referring to here. He's saying that there's a sharp distinction between what God has accomplished and what the world wants to take away. And I say that because, as I mentioned, encouragement is often made to mean an apt or timely word, and that's all it is. So long as that apt and timely word is not too theological or too focused on the word of God. And so when people actually try to encourage people in their faith, they're shunned at times and told, well, you're saying things that are perhaps too biblical, too heavenly minded, where you can be, quote unquote, no earthly good, which is a myth. But they're told that they're, they're not to come to people with doctrine, with the Bible, with teaching, with scripture, with that which Christ has proclaimed through his apostles. But that's not the case. Encouragement here, as I say, and as I believe the word is very much defined, encouragement here is the encouragement that Paul longed to give. And he not only longed to give it, he longed to receive it. And it's based on what Jesus said about the truth, the nature of truth, him being truth personified. When he prayed that his high priestly prayer before God the Father, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So Paul was he longed to give and receive not only which was an apt word, but full agreement on God's word. That's what he wanted. That's what he prayed for. And that will lead us into what will follow uh, related uh, to the distinctions he'll make as to who follows what the Lord has taught and who doesn't. Let's pray. 